Hello and welcome back to This Shit Really Happened, the true crime podcast where we deep dive into the most disturbing, depraved, and downright gruesome crimes humans have ever committed. My name is M, and as always, I am your host. Well, hello and welcome back to this podcast. This is part two of the uh, Dutro affair posted part one, however long ago it was. It took me way longer than I expected to be able to sit down and record part two. My life is a little busy. I do work a full-time job. I wish I could make money off doing this podcast, but unfortunately, that's not a luxury I have. So I recorded this a little bit later. I'm recording this, I should say, a little bit later than I wanted to. I was hoping to, you know, get part two out within like a week of part one, but clearly that didn't happen. Clearly some other stuff got in the way and I'm also lazy as all hell. So, you know, I had some chances before this to record part two, but, you know, instead I decided to um, just sit on my couch and play Animal Crossing because the new update came out. And then also a new Pokemon game just dropped. So you bet your ass I have been playing that since it came out. Uh, So... Recording part two has been kind of low on my priority list, but we're here now. We're doing it now. It is currently 9.54 in the evening. Evening. It's 9.54 at night. I just got back from a turkey raffle where I didn't win shit, save for a little jar full of candies. I mean, I guess I won a little something, but, you know, we're here now. We're recording part two. Um... And I mean, we're just going to pick off right where we left off. I didn't record an intro to this part because I honestly didn't feel like it was necessary. And I'm not going to go in and recap the entirety of part one. Um, If you haven't listened to part one, A, I don't know why you're listening to part two right now. And B, go listen to part one if you want to know all the dirty details of everything that Mark Dutro did, what his crimes were, um, because now in part two... I'm going to be talking about the aftermath, the trial of Mark Dutro, everything that went down with that, the completely botched police investigation, the accusations of a cover-up, the public outcry, all of that really good stuff. Um, So when we had left off in part one, Mark Dutro had been arrested after witnesses had seen him in his van when he was kidnapping um, Letitia Delhez. So he had... Previously, at this point, he had kidnapped and murdered Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo, also um, Anne Marshall and Effie Lambrex. Um, he had had previous victims before then. Remember, he had spent some time in prison and he got out after a ridiculously short amount of time. And then after that, he had gone on basically to continue his crimes of abducting, raping, and then now murdering young girls. So, you know, he... Continues his crime streak. Um, the last two girls he kidnaps before he's arrested for these crimes, again, were Sabine Darden and Letitia Delhez. Um, when Delhez had been kidnapped, there was witnesses who had been able to describe Dutro's van that he was driving. His, like, gross, nasty, very typical, like, you know, pedophile in a white van van. So they had caught the van. They'd gotten his license plate. They saw him kidnap Letitia Delhez. Um, they alerted police, these witnesses did. And then only a few days later, police were closing in on Dutro's house where they, of course, you know, arrested 
interrogate him. Um, they take him into custody, and he basically gives a full confession. They find Sabine Darden and Letitia Delhez in the basement dungeon that Dutro had in his home in Marcinelle. And then he also leads them to the bodies of Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo, and then to the bodies of Anne Marshall and Effie Lambrex, along with one of his accomplices, Bernard Weinstein, who Dutroux had also murdered as well. So at this point in the story, Dutroux and his accomplice, um, Michel Lelevra, they have both been arrested for these crimes. They have both sung like canaries. And the police have also discovered oodles of additional evidence, you know, namely like photographs that Dutro had taken. They also found a lot of pornographic videos, both of Dutro and his wife at the time, um, Michelle Martin, and then, you know, some additional videos as well. But we'll go into a little bit more detail about those videos um, when we talk about the evidence, the trial, the supposed cover up, all that good stuff. So at this point, um, Dutro is arrested. It is 1996 when he is arrested. So when Dutro is taken into custody, um, he actually doesn't end up getting put on trial for any of these courts, I believe, until 2004. So remember, he's arrested in 1996, but he doesn't go on trial for this until March 1st of 2004. So when it came to the investigation into Dutro's crimes, like, okay, the guy gave a full confession. He, remember, he takes them to the bodies of Michelle Russo, Julie Lejeune, Effie Lambrex, and Marshall. He takes them to all those bodies. There's no question that he has these bodies on his property. He gives them a full confession. Right? They find Sabine Darden and Letitia Delhez literally in the dungeon basement in Mark Dutro's house in Marcinelle. And somehow, some way, he doesn't actually go on trial for these crimes until about seven and a half years after he's arrested. Um, the reason for this, or the reason that has been pointed to a lot for this, is not just the fact that it was a slow justice system. Like, I know some things move slowly when it comes to actually prosecuting people for the crimes they commit, but seven and a half years is quite a long time you know typically it's maybe like three years four years you know five years if we're really getting up there on the timeline but seven and a half is quite a long time to wait to prosecute somebody for crimes as severe as the ones Mark Dutro had committed and it wasn't like they were lacking evidence they had a full confession from him they had a full confession from Michelle Lelevra they had Michelle Martin also corroborating the story of how Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo were murdered so still somehow some way Mark Dutro doesn't get put on trial for this until the till 2004. So like I was saying, a lot of the thought behind why it took so long to A, arrest Mark Dutro in the first place and B, put him on trial is because there were a lot of incompetencies and a lot of missteps with the police investigation in this case. So um, honestly, it was just marred with, it was straight incompetence of the police that were investigating this case. So there were multiple, multiple revelations of multiple failures of law enforcement when it came to bringing Mark Dutro into custody. Um, these revelations, these the revealing of all of the incompetencies of the police in this case, 
understandably, they caused a lot of public outcry. There was huge public outcry when the details of this case came to light. Um, I just want to talk about a little bit, you know, going back to when Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo, when they first went missing. So when these two girls, remember, because they were kidnapped off the street, they were, I believe, eight years old at the time. And when they go missing, guess who was at the very top of the police's list of suspects? If you guessed Mark Dutrell, you would be right. He was literally... One of the first people, if not the first people that the police had on their top list of suspects, they suspected him immediately. Um, If you guys recall from part one, this was not Dutro's first foray into abducting and raping girls. Back in the early 90s, right, he had, I believe it was five girls um like young preteen girls i think his oldest victim at that stint was 17 or 19 years old i can't remember specifically and i'm really not feeling having to scroll that far back in my notes to figure it out but anyways so this was not dutro's first foray into committing these sorts of crimes and the police knew that he was on police radar a lot and often after he'd been released from prison for the time he served for those crimes that he committed back in the early 90s um, so yeah, he is suspect numero uno. He is at the top of the police list, but somehow, for some reason, he was not ever brought in to be questioned by the police until 14 months after Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo had gone missing. Um, on top of that, also, there was an actual letter, like a written letter that was sent to police in 1995 by Mark Dutro's mother herself. Like, not just some stranger, not just some random source that was saying, hey, you know, I think that this Mark Dutro guy, he's a little sus. Maybe you want to look into him. No, it was his literal mother had sent police a letter stating that she knew that Mark Dutro had kidnapped two young girls and was keeping them held hostage in his home. They had a literal written letter from his mother. And you would think that police would jump at that, right? They've got two missing young girls that the public is desperately pleading for police to find. There, you know, there's missing posters of these girls posted all over the city where they are abducted from. Their parents are pleading with the public if anybody knows anything to, you know, help find their daughters and this letter comes in that would be a huge lead for police. And right, Dutro is already on their radar, right? And they get this letter, that should be a blank check for them and be like, all right, you know, we we have probably some probable cause here. We should, you know, probably go talk to this guy and see what's up. But no, they get this letter from Dutro's mother, who was literally saying that she knows that he has two young girls held captive in his home. And instead of Taking that lead and running with it, the police just, they decide to do nothing with it. They just file it away into a box. They don't do anything with this letter that they received from Mark Dutro's mother. Also, um, remember back in, you know, 1995 when Mark Dutro was arrested for that wild car theft that resulted in him murdering Bernard Weinstein? Um, so a few of his houses got searched after he was arrested in 1995. When this happened, there were hundreds of videotapes that were recovered from Mark Dutro's house. So these were 
tapes that the police, they found, they recovered, and they just never watched any of them. They had pulled these tapes into evidence. They had them in their possession. There was literally no reason for them to not watch these tapes. But somebody, somehow, some way, made the call that was like, eh, we don't think these are really that important, even though they're pulling these tapes from the house of a known pedophile who is known to take photos, take videos of him literally raping his victims and keeping them to get his jimmies off to later or selling them to other pedophiles in the area or on the black market. They find hundreds of these videos, but they're like, nah, we don't really think there's anything on here that we need to look at. You know, we're just going to file these away into evidence and we're never going to watch them. So they found the tapes. They don't watch them. So some of these tapes, um, while they weren't viewed at the time, um, I guess I should backtrack and not say that the police never watched them, but they did not watch them after they were recovered. The tapes weren't watched until years later, until Dutroux had actually been put on trial. Um, he'd been put in prison. This is when these tapes are actually pulled out of evidence and they're looked at. So what was on these tapes? Um, some of them showed him constructing the dungeon in that house in Marcinel where he held um, Julie Lejeune, where he held Melissa Russo, um, where he eventually held Sabine Darden and Letitia Delhez as well. Um, so had the police watched these videos when they recovered them in 1995 after Dutro had been arrested for the car theft, there is a very high possibility that these tapes in the images and the evidence that was on them, if not showing the actual um, assault and rape of the girls that he was holding prison or holding prison, holding prisoner, they would have at least had enough probable cause to go and investigate Dutro's home, right? They see him constructing what is clearly a dungeon in the basement of his home. This is a known pedophile. And, you know, they see him constructing a dungeon that's probably going to put a light bulb off in someone's head. You think, hmm, Maybe we should go knock on this guy's door with a search warrant or whatever you needed in Belgium at the time to be able to search somebody's home. You know, maybe we should go knock on this guy's door. He's already in our custody. Let's go search his home and see if we can find this dungeon he was constructing. You know, let's see if he's got anything suspect in there, anything that we need to go look at. And had they done this, had they been able to go in and find this dungeon and search this dungeon back in 1995, they could have possibly found and rescued Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo before they had died of starvation in that dungeon. Um, in addition to that, when Dutro was arrested um, in 1996 for the kidnappings, um, right when he had been witnessed kidnapping Letitia Delhez, the police did eventually go and search this dungeon, right? Because Mark Dutro, he he confesses everything. He lets them know that he has this dungeon in his house. So they do go eventually investigate it after the second time that Dutro was arrested in 1996. And when they search this dungeon, they find thousands of hairs in this cellar dungeon. So they find all these hairs, right? And there's so many that they're thinking there's no way that all of these hairs could possibly have come from um, Julie Lejeune, Melissa Russo, Sabine Darden, and Letitia Delhez, right? Because there's a ton of stuff, or a ton of stuff, a ton of hairs that they find. So yeah, I mean, Dutro did have accomplices, but it was himself. It was Bernard Weinstein. It was Michelle Martin on Michelle Lelevra. And even then, that's only an additional four people. And like I said, they recovered thousands upon thousands of hairs from this dungeon. So this could be 
an open door to finding possible additional accomplices or finding if there had been more victims that Mark Dutro just did not tell police about. So you'd think that they would want to run these hairs, pull DNA profiles on them, run them against whatever, you know, DNA or criminal database they had at the time to see if they get any hits or any possible matches or, you know, even create DNA profiles from these hairs for future testing. You know, you would think that they would jump on the opportunity. They have found thousands of hairs in this dungeon that can't possibly all belong to the known people or the people they knew had been inside that dungeon at that up until that point. So, you know, you would think that they would test these and and do that with them. But no, they recover them in, in 1996 and they, they don't decide to test or do anything with them up until 2001. So basically the police, when they arrest Dutro, when they go and they search his home, they find so much evidence. They find so many things that they could use not only to connect Dutro further to all the crimes, but also possibly find more victims, find more accomplices, anything. And you would think that they would take this evidence and run with it, but frankly, they found it, they filed it away, and they didn't touch it again until years later, until the public was pushing for them to find or to use this evidence to find possibly, again, more victims or more people that had been involved in these crimes. But the police, they were sitting on all of this evidence and they just were like, hmm, well, you know, maybe it's not that important. Like, he confessed. We don't really need anything more than that. We don't need to know anything further. So they just sit on this evidence and they don't really do anything with it. Um, so a lot of the thought behind why the police investigation in this crime was so terrible, um, was because the public, a lot of people, um, in the public, they thought that the investigation was so terrible because the police were actively trying to cover up Mark Dutro's crimes. So, um, this actually came from a claim from Mark Dutro himself that he was not the mastermind behind this entire plan. Like, yeah, he was the one who was controlling his accomplices like Lil Levra and Michelle Martin and Bernard, we or Bernard Weinstein at the time when he was working with all of them. But he made the claim that, you know, he was not the top dog. He was not the one that was actually calling the shots here. Um, he had claimed that he was working for a European-wide um, child trafficking and pedophile ring, basically. Um, so we'll we'll get into that a little bit more, but I just want to lay that out there because that goes to show a lot of the reason why this was a possible cover-up or a lot of why people suspected that this was a cover-up when all of the uh, police incompetencies and the failures with the investigation came to light as well. Because um, according to what Dutro had been stating about this child sex trafficking ring, it involved a lot of people, really powerful people in Belgian society. You know, there were police officers involved. There were politicians. You know, there was even, um, you know, back like somebody who was like a member of the royal family, the Belgian royal family. Um, so there were a lot of powerful people that Mark Dutro was saying was involved in this sex trafficking ring. So when uh, the public heard this, a lot of the opinion shifted towards the fact that the police were actively trying to cover this up because a lot of the powerful people that would have been implicated by this case, they had the police in their back pocket. Um, so like I mentioned earlier, 
Detroit's trial for these crimes, it starts on March 1st, 2004, which again was nearly seven and a half years after his initial arrest. So Dutroux, along with his accomplices, um, Michel Lelevra, and also Jean-Michel Nihul, if you remember him, I mentioned him a little earlier on in part one of this case. So Jean-Michel Nihul, he was a person that Mark Dutroux had met when he was in prison for that first stint of abductions and rape that he had committed in the early 90s. Um, and according to Michel Lelevra, who had given a lot of police testimony when he had been arrested as well, he had said that Dutroux and Nihul, they had met again in prison and that they had actively been making plans while they were in prison to abduct and rape young girls. So Dutroux's confession additionally implicated Nihul, along with implicating on Michelle Lelevra. It also implicated Michelle Martin again, but I believe she ended up striking a deal for a lesser sentence with the um, with the prosecutor. So she did end up getting, I believe she got a, like three or four years. I, I don't exactly know what she was sentenced for, and I honestly didn't really go that deep into it because she... She wasn't really involved with any of the of the bulk of the crimes after those initial ones that happened in, in the early 90s. So, I mean, she was aware of what Mark Dutroux was doing. Again, she knew that he had Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo down in his basement dungeon, but she wasn't as actively involved in these crimes as she had been with um, the ones that happened in the early 90s. So she strikes a deal with the, with the prosecution. She testifies against Mark Dutroux, and she only ends up getting you know, a few years in prison based on her, I guess, I don't really, again, know what they charged her for, but she gave testimony, so they they cut her a deal with that. But, um, so the main three on trial are Mark Dutroux, Jean-Michel Nihul, and Michelle Lelevra. So they are all tried for the murders of Anne Marshall, Effie Lambrex, and Bernard Weinstein. I don't know why they were not tried for the... Um, the murders of Melissa Russo and Julie Lejeune. I can maybe, maybe that's a little bit further in my notes, but when they're put on trial, they are actively put on trial for the murders of Anne Marshall, Effie Lambrex, and Bernard Weinstein. Remember, Anne and Effie, they had been murdered by Dutroux and Weinstein by being drugged and then buried alive. And then Dutroux, after he had gotten suspicious that Bernard Weinstein was about to basically roll against him or turn on him, Dutroux had also murdered Bernard Weinstein and buried him in the backyard of his home in the same area that he had buried Anne Marshall and Evie Lambrex. So, again, March 1st, 2004, the trial of these three men begins. Um, so, throughout his trial, Dutroux insisted that he was only a small part of, again, this European-wide pedophile ring with accomplices among police officers, businessmen, doctors, and even high-level Belgian politicians. So, during his testimony, Dutroux alleged that all of the abductions had been organized and orchestrated by Jean-Michel Nihul. So, he is putting a lot of the blame and a lot of the reasoning behind why he did what he did as being directed by Nihul. Um, he did admit to the torture, I should say Dutroux admitted to the torture and abuse of the girls he abducted, um, but he actually denied having raped and murdered Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo, although he did admit to imprisoning them in his house. Um, he also made this ridiculous notion or ridiculous statement that he was protecting Julie and Melissa from a more powerful and more sinister sex trafficking ring. So, 
you know, by keeping them imprisoned in this dungeon and by starving them, by abusing them, by torturing them, raping them. According to Mark Dutroux, he was protecting them because at least if it was just him doing these things to them, you know, at least in his mind, that was better than if they were taken by this sex trafficking ring that he supposedly worked for. So there were a lot of witnesses and a lot of testimony that came forth in this trial. There were nearly 450 witnesses that were called to testify in this trial. Um, I talked a little bit again about Michelle Martin. She testified that Dutro and Bernard Weinstein had kidnapped Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo. Um, and she also stated that Dutro had confessed to her that he had murdered Bernard Weinstein as well. Um, Martin further said that Dutro and Weinstein had killed Anne Marshall and Effie Lambrax. She testified additionally, again, that Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo had starved to death in the basement dungeon at the Holman Marcinelle in 1995 when Dutro was in jail. Um, she claims that while she knew that Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo were in prison down in the basement um, when Dutro was in police custody, but she was, quote, too scared to descend down to the basement to bring them any fresh food or water. Um, she, again, she had known Dutro back before he had committed this stint of crime. She had been one of his accomplices when he was abducting and raping girls prior to all of this. These crimes with, you know, Melissa and Julie and, and the ones that he's put on trial for currently now in 2004. She also testified that he had decided that he was going to start abducting and raping girls back in 1985. Um, she said that he had said to her that it was easier to abduct and rape girls than to have to have affairs. So instead of, you know, cheating on his wife with adult women, women his age, consenting women, Mark Dutrell apparently, according to Michelle Martin, thought it would be easier to just abduct and rape young girls instead of having affairs with consenting women. Yeah, it, it makes sense, I guess, in the mind of a pedophile and a human trash pile like Mark Dutrell. But anyways, um, she had testified again that Dutrell, in addition to this ridiculous statement about how abducting and raping girls would be easier than starting affairs, um, that this would also make sure that he had more resources and more time to spend on Michelle Martin. And this is one of the main reasons she said that she had helped him with those abductions back on in the late 80s, early 90s, and also why she had stuck around when he began abducting, raping, and then murdering his victims for these crimes that we're talking about now that happened in the late 90s. Um, so a lot of the most damning testimony did come from Michelle Martin herself. Um, the additional 450 witnesses that were called to the stand, they were like people who had known Mark Dutrow in passing or who had, you know, been related to the case somehow or somehow in relation to 
one of the accomplices that Mark Dutro had. But along with Michelle Martin, there was also testimony during this trial that was known as the X-Files. So these were the testimonies of other victims of Dutro that had come forward after one of the prosecuting judges, uh, Jean-Marc Connerot, Connerot? C-O-N-N-E-R-O-T-T-E. Connor wrote, I'm going to go with Connor wrote, Jean-Marc Connor wrote, had made a public appeal for these victims to come forward. So uh, remember how I had mentioned that there was thousands of hairs found down in this dungeon when the police uh, raided or searched uh, Mark Dutro's house in Marcinel. So uh, Jean-Michel Connor wrote, he knew of this evidence and he basically had the thought in his head that there had to be more victims of Mark Dutro out there somewhere. Now, whether it was young girls who had actually been held captive in this dungeon or had crossed paths with Mark Dutro somehow some way before and were subject to abuse by him, he figured that there had to be more out there. So he, again, he made a public appeal for these victims to come forward on their identities would be protected and they would be able to give testimony to be heard at Mark Dutro's trial. Um, so all of the witnesses that did decide to come forward, they were actually given code names. So they were like an X and then a number. So like X1, X2, etc. Um, there was the first testimony of witness X1, who was a woman whose name was actually later revealed to be Regina Loof or Loaf, Lauf, L-O-U-F. These are all like French names. So I'm terribly pronouncing them. So let's go with Regina Lauf. She testified that from the age of 11 and 12 onwards, there was a family friend she had stated who was named Tony Vander Bogart, who would take her to sex parties with the approval of her family. So she testified that the parties, they didn't just include on sex, but they also included sadism, torture, and murder. She claimed that one of the organizers of the parties was a man she knew as Mitch or Mish, and this was referring to Jean-Michel Nihul. Lauf also said that Dutro, at the time, he was a young man who brought drugs to the parties for the girls that were taken there to basically numb themselves and took care of them in other ways. I couldn't find additional specificities on what she meant by he took care of them in other ways, but basically, she testified that Dutro got involved with this sex trafficking ring or these underground sex parties and was involved with Jean-Michel Nihuel possibly before they had met in prison, right? Because remember, Michel Lelevre had claimed that Dutro and Nihuel had met in prison when Dutro was in there initially. Um, but according to Regina Love's testimony, Dutro had known and was involved with Jean-Michel Nihul many, many years before he had ever gone to prison for those first strings of abduction and rapes that he had committed. So according to Lauf, he, Dutro, was in this very deep from the time that he was, you know, a teenager, basically. Um, there was also additional testimony from a witness known as um, Witness X2. She, her testimony implied that there were a multitude of high-ranking Belgian politicians who had also been present at the sex parties and had orgies with underage girls. So this included 
Etienne Davignon, who was the former vice president of the European Commission. This involved Maurice Lippens, who was a noble Belgian businessman, politician, and colonial civil servant and lawyer. Um, also, Paul Vanden Boyenat, who was the former prime minister of Belgium. Um, there was Benoit de Bonvoisin, who was a Belgian far-right activist. And there was also um, accusations that Prince Alexandra, Alexander, Prince Alexander of, uh, oh gosh, I'm not even going to pronounce this, but a former Belgian prince, I believe, who was alive in like the late 1800s to the early 1900s that he was also involved in these sex parties and these orgies with underage girls as well. So if this was true, this means that this ring has been active now at this point for almost a century. Because again, yeah, he was the Prince of Belgium in the 1800s to the 1900s. So if this is true, if he was involved in this, and if, if this witness's testimony was correct and was accurate, this underground sex party this sex ring was going on for a very 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 long time at this point by the time mark dutro would have gotten involved in it um so on june 22nd 2004 mark dutro is sentenced to the maximum sentence of life imprisonment um well, oh, okay. Let me hold on and, and backtrack, I guess, because I just came across my notes. I was thinking, I guess I was wrong that Michelle Martin had copped to a lesser sentence. So she must have gotten something. Maybe she she just didn't end up getting life in prison. But according to my notes, um, she received a sentence of 30 years. So she was an accomplice, right? She knew everything that was going on. She knew that Julia Lejeune and Melissa Russo were in that dungeon. She didn't feed them. She let them starve. So she did testify against Mark Dutro. I guess this was probably to save her from getting the sentence of life in prison. But she did end up getting 30 years. Um, and then Michel Lelevre, he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. Jean-Michel Nihul was actually acquitted of the kidnapping and conspiracy charges. Um, he was convicted, though, on some drug-related charges, and he ended up being sentenced to five years imprisonment. So let's go back and talk a little bit about these accusations of a cover-up. So one of the things that does make this case so controversial, you know, other than the whole like underground Belgian pedophile sex trafficking ring thing, um, one of the things that makes this so controversial was the accusations of a cover up that the Belgian public put forth against the authorities who investigated the case. So there were a multitude of happenings during the investigation that are definitely like really kind of fishy. And honestly, when I say kind of fishy, I mean like extremely fishy there was some very sus things that went on in relation to the investigation of this case before the trial had happened um the biggest factor that points to a cover-up was actually Dutro's own testimony right because he was the one who had flat out testified and said hey I was not doing this by my own charge or my own volition, I was working under the direction of my bosses in this huge European-wide Belgian sex trafficking ring that includes tons of high-ranked people in Belgian society, like judges, politicians, businessmen, the works, right? So when the public caught wind or heard what Dutro's claims or what his testimony was, they were like, 
all right, yeah, that checks out when we think about how botched the investigation was and everything that went wrong with them. If this was a cover-up because of the high-ranking people that were supposedly involved in this sex trafficking hearing, like Dutro was saying, you know, a cover-up does not sound completely outrageous. It is definitely, like, within the realm of possibilities. Um, so there's a whole bunch of reasons why people believe that the Belgian authorities tried to cover Dutro's crimes up. Um, honestly, more than I have the want or the need to discuss here. Um, so what I'm really going to talk about beyond Dutro's testimony itself is another factor or another little piece of this story here that I feel is really kind of the most damning or one of the most damning things when it comes to the accusations that there was an active cover-up of this case. Um, so I have a couple points that I'm going to talk about. So I've got like, what, three points, three things that I think really point to the possibility of a cover-up here. So um, the first is actually the removal of Judge Jean-Marc Connerot from the case. So remember, this was the judge who put out that public plea for additional victims of Mark Dutro to come forward to testify in his trial. So he was removed from the case in October of 1996 after he had held a fundraising dinner for the families of Dutro's victims. Um, prior to his removal, the press had also reported that Connor wrote planned to release the names of high-ranking officials that had been identified from pornographic videotapes that had been re recovered from Dutro's home. Um, Gian Russo, who is the father of Melissa Russo, he had even said he's been quoted as saying that the removal of Judge Connor Rout was like, quote, spitting on the graves of Julie and Melissa. Um, so after Connor Rout's removal, there was no further investigation into their relation of Dutro's crimes to a possible pedophilic sex trafficking ring. So basically, they take Judge Connor Rout, who is one of the only people who was really, really pushing hard for some additional investigation into this supposed sex trafficking ring. And they, you know, basically the other Belgian authorities who were investigating this, the other judges, the other prosecutors, whoever they were, they thought that he was getting too personally involved, or so they said. They said they thought that he was just getting too caught up in it, too biased, so they decided to remove him from the case. Um, and after he was removed, again, there was no additional investigation into this possible or the possible existence of this pedophilic sex trafficking ring that Dutro had been claiming he was a part of. Um, the second point that I wanted to bring up was the failure to test the DNA that was found in Dutro's basement dungeon where Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo were imprisoned. Um, there were countless hairs, remember thousands of hairs that were found in this dungeon. Um, the judge that took the lead on the investigation after Connor Oat was removed refused to have these hairs DNA tested, even though the leading police detective at the time, Michelle Burley, begged for the hairs to be tested. Additionally, the lead prosecutor, her name was Ann Thiele, also did not push to have the hairs tested because she stated that it was her impression that there were no other people involved in the case beyond Dutro and his immediate accomplices. So never mind what Dutro himself is stating. She was firm in her belief that the only people involved were, again, Mark Dutro and his immediate accomplices, Michelle Martin, Michelle Glevra, and... Jean-Michel Nihul, who were all on trial for these crimes. Um, Thiele would also later say to journalists that over 5,000 hairs were tested and none proved to belong to anyone other than the girls, Dutro, or his accomplices, which honestly, I think is bullshit. Like, people shed hair. Yes, we shed a lot of hair, but 5,000 hairs. 
found in that little dungeon, where for the majority of the time, only Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo were in there. You're telling me that in the short time they were there, these girls shed 5,000 hairs, you know, give or take a few that might have been from Dutroux and his accomplices. Yeah, no, like I 100% call shenanigans on that. But, you know, I couldn't be the one making the decisions, obviously. And the prosecutor at the time, I guess she just, you know, felt like it wasn't important or she was just flat out lying and said, you know, we tested these hairs and they were from Dutroux, his accomplices and the victims that we know about. Um, this statement that Tylee gave, this would be refuted by sources central to the investigation. Um, the hairs were not tested until many years later, actually, in the mid-2000s. So many years, remember, they were recovered mostly in 1995 and 1996, but they were not actually tested until the mid-2000s. And when they were tested, it was found that there were over 25 different DNA profiles discovered from the hairs, but the prosecution never attempted to link these DNA profiles to any people that had been implicated in the case by Dutroux or his accomplices. So they found these different DNA profiles. This was clear evidence that there was more people involved beyond Mark Dutroux and his immediate accomplices, but the prosecution did nothing with this evidence. They got the profiles and they decided pretty much that there was no need to investigate it further. Point three that I wanted to talk about is honestly what I find to be like the weirdest or like the most really suspicious things like the other two were basically just like very obvious miscarriage of judge wow words miscarriage of justice right they removed one of the judges uh Judge Connor wrote, who was like the only one who really gave a shit about prosecuting this case appropriately, finding Dutro's accomplices and really getting down to whether or not there was an actual pedophile ring like Dutro was stating there was. You know, he gets thrown off the case and then that pedophile ring, that lead is never followed after he's removed. And then we have the failure to test the thousands of hairs on that were found until the mid-2000s, years after they were first discovered in the basement dungeon. And then, you know, Aunt Thiley, the prosecutor, were stating that the Harris belonged only to Dutroux, his accomplices, and the victims. But yet having that refuted that there was actually 25 different DNA profiles. And even with that, you know, they they just decided not to investigate. Like, that is very clearly something that can be related back to the police just not doing their job or feeling like, this additional evidence wasn't important to follow up on. But this third point, this is honestly like really strange. So point three is that um, more than 20 witnesses that were related to the case are slated to testify against Mark Dutro and his accomplices. More than 20 of these witnesses wound up dead under mysterious circumstances. Um, honestly, for me, this is kind of like the nail in the coffin here. I think when we think back to you know, what goes on with possible underground, like pedophile sex trafficking rings with a lot of very powerful people involved. I think one of the, I mean, this is me, maybe this is what you guys think of too, but, you know, I think of like people in very high powerful positions, they don't want anybody to know what they're involved in, right? So if there is a possibility that they're going to be found out or that the sex trafficking ring is going to be found out and they know people are going to testify against them, like they're going to start, you know, they're going to start 
killing people off, right? They they don't want people to be able to testify and, and say that these people were a part of this pedophile ring. Honestly, I'm really surprised that like somebody didn't order a hit on Mark Dutrow when he was in prison because he was like the main guy here, right? He was admitting all the secrets. He's like, mm, yeah, he's like, I work for a pedophile ring. There's a lot of people involved. I got videotapes of them you know, having orgies in my dungeon with these girls that I kidnapped for them. Uh, I really am surprised that they just didn't like off him in prison, but whatever, I'm, I'm getting off track here. So, um, yeah, more than 20 witnesses that were slated to testify wound up dead under mysterious circumstances. So I'm not going to talk about all 20, um, but I am going to talk about a few that, I thought were like especially suspicious or when I was looking through these sources, I was like, huh, that seems to just be like way too large of a coincidence to not warrant some additional, uh, additional thought about whether or not this person's death was actually an accident or whatever it was framed as. So I know, of course, we know that Bernard Weinstein, he ended up dead. Dutro murdered him when he thought that Weinstein was going to roll on him and turn on him and possibly be be a loose end that Mark Dutro would have to tie up. But um, some of the additional people that were possible witnesses that wound up dead um, were Jean-Paul Taminau. He owned a hangar across from the one that Mark Dutro owned. Um, he went missing in 1995, shortly after he had revealed to a friend that he received important information about Mark Dutro. It's not specified what this information was. Um, I suspect maybe it had to do with some mysterious things that Mark Dutro was keeping in this storage hangar that um, Tammy now owned the one across from. But either way, he disappears in 1995. And a year later, his foot, and only his foot, was discovered in a river. So the rest of his body was never found. They just found his foot. Um, another person who mysteriously died was Anna Kanjevoda. And I'm so sorry if I'm not saying that right. Um, she had contacted the police to tell them about the connections of a porn ring around Dutro to Eastern Europe. Um, she died because she was beaten and strangled and her body was also dumped in a river as well. Another person who had died under mysterious circumstances was Francois Ryskins, who was part of the drug and crime scene. And he had told his father that he wanted to talk to him about Melissa Russo before the public actually knew about Melissa Russo's kidnapping. So if that's not clear, this man, he... He knew that Melissa was kidnapped before the public knew that Melissa was kidnapped. So there was no way that he could have possibly known that Melissa was missing unless he had some insider knowledge about her kidnapping. Um, so he actually died the day before he was set to testify during Dutro's trial. Um, he was killed in an apparent accident. Apparently he uh, fell in front of a speeding train. <laughs> I don't know how many people fall in front of trains. It honestly seems like people either, you know, I like I know what happens, but we're talking about a person who the day before he was set to testify against a known pedophile with accusations of connections to an underground pedophile ring. And you're telling me he just so happened to fall in front of a train the day he was supposed to testify. Yeah, no. Seems a little suspicious to me. Frankly, in my opinion, somebody pushed him in front of that train to keep him from testifying. 
Another person who died mysteriously was Bernard Routmend, who was a film director, and he was known to trade pornographic videos of young girls. He was actually on his way to talk to a police officer after volunteering to testify in the Detroit case when he died after his car crashed into a building. Uh, slash brakes, anyone? Cut brake lines, possibly? Question mark? I don't know. Seems a little sus to me. Um, and finally, the last person I'm going to talk about in this regard was Christoph Van Hex. He was a journalist who was investigating the case who also happened to die in a car crash. So, like, you know, we've got two people who mysteriously die and their bodies or their body parts are found dumped in rivers. We have a man who quote unquote fell in front of a train the day he was or the day before he was set to testify against Mark Dutro. And then we have two people, one who was going to testify against Dutro and a journalist who was covering the case who just so happened to mysteriously die in car crashes. So there's a lot more. I think there's a total of 26 witnesses that died in mysterious ways. I included um, one of the sources that I looked at on the source page that actually lists out all the people who died and all the mysterious ways that they died and then the way that they were connected to the case, which is really interesting if you want to look into that a little bit more. But there was definitely, definitely a lot of really suspicious deaths of a lot of people really close to the case who could have and were willing to testify against Mark Dutro and possibly provide some additional testimony confirming the existence of this underground pedophile ring. So in the aftermath of Mark Dutro's trial, there was a huge, huge public outcry. So again, this was... Cause I think I've said it already. I'll say it a whole bunch of different times, but the police investigation in this case was absolutely abysmal. And the public was, to put it frankly, they're pissed about that. They were not happy with the way that the police had handled this case. And that's why the accusations that there was a cover up, they hold so much weight because frankly, there's a lot of, you know, it's all circumstantial. Obviously, there's not going to be any way to absolutely confirm that there was a cover up in this case. But there's so many different factors that point to this being a cover-up and the police really just wanting to pin the entire thing on Marc Dutro, on Michelle Lelevre, on Michelle Martin, and Jean-Michel Nihul. They did not want to look any deeper into it than just going beyond these, these four people that they had on trial. It was very surface level, even though they had Dutro himself pointing to something deeper. They had videos of... Multiple powerful people in Belgian society on video having sex with underage girls. They had testimony from a few of the witnesses in the X-Files that had linked Dutro and Jean-Michel Nihoul to these underground sex parties or there are powerful politicians and powerful people in Belgian society attending those. But, you know, all of the trial and the investigation, like I said, it was very, very surface level. So understandably, the public was not happy with the way that things went down in this case. I mean, they were happy that Mark Dutro ended up going to prison and that his accomplices did. But there was so many questions left unanswered when this case was finally wrapped up. Um, there was actually a march in protest of when Judge Conorot was removed from the case. Because again, right, he was one of the only people who really gave a shit about this. He was, you know, close to the parents of... 
Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo, he was the one who had really pushed for the releasing of names of the people in Belgian society, like those politicians that he had seen on the videotapes that they recovered from Dutro's home. So when he was removed from the case, when the when the public and the families of the victims felt like they had lost one of the only people that was prosecuting the case that was really pushing for you know, more than just this surface level investigation, when they were removed, there was a march of over 300,000 Belgian citizens to protest this. So this was known as the White March. Um, later on, there was a second protest called the Black March. This was actually organized 23 years after the White March. Um, so this protest was organized to protest the prospect of Marc Dutroux receiving a conditional release from prison. Um, the public also protested the conditional release of Dutroux's accomplice, Michel Lelevre. Um, the Dutroux case, it ends up being, or ended up being, or I should say it is, one of the most infamous cases in Belgian history. Um, it had a lot of like public impact. Like I said, there were 300,000 people strong marches in the streets like just to protest, not what had happened with the case but to protest like the removal of a judge that was prosecuting it because the public was so adamant that they wanted these people like Mark Dutroux and his accomplices and any other possible people that could have been involved with the the abduction and the rape and the murder of these innocent young girls they wanted them to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law so you know they have a judge who's removed and they're like, oh, hell no. You know, you've got 300,000 people in the streets protesting just the removal of one person from the investigation of the case. Um, and even in Belgium, one third of Belgians who had the surcharge or the surcharge, <laughs> the surname Dutroux, they actually applied to have their surname changed between 1996 and 1998. So one third of people with the last name Dutroux between 1996 and 1998, they applied to have their last name changed because they didn't they did not want to carry the same last name as Mark Dutroux. Not when, for a lot of Belgians, this case was so infamous that that surname, it immediately makes them think of Mark Dutroux and makes them think of this case. So, you know, it's unfortunate that these people had to change their last name, but that is how infamous this case was in Belgium. This is how, you know, how much this affected the public and it affected Belgian society. It really put a, a dark stain on Belgian history and in the public's perception of their law enforcement and their faith in their law enforcement. Um, so yeah, these poor people, like a third of them, that's a huge amount of people. They were like, nope, we're not doing this. We are not even going to give the chance or the potential that somebody could think we're related to Mark Dutroux. Like we're just going to change our last name. Um, so a little bit of like modern updates, because again, um, Dutroux, this trial happened in 2004. Um, on February 4th, 2013, Dutroux requested the court in Brussels for early release from prison. He insisted that he was, quote, no longer dangerous and wanted to be released into house arrest with an electronic tag, an ankle bracelet basically placed upon him. So he's like, 
I'm not dangerous anymore. You can let me out of prison. Like, I'll just be on house arrest in one of my seven houses. <laughs> but they actually, the the, uh, the government took possession of his houses. So I, I don't know how many they left him. But, you know, he was like, I'll just be on house arrest. You can put an electronic ankle tag on me. Like, I won't do this anymore. I promise. Um, but thankfully, on February 18th, 2013, the court denied his request. <laughs> Um, Dutro, he is still currently in prison to date. He is being held in solitary confinement in the prison of Nival. Don't know exactly where that is. Maybe in Nival. <laughs> but yeah, he is still in prison. He is currently being held in solitary confinement. Um, in October of 2019, though, Dutro did win the pre-parole right to a psychiatric assessment, which was supposed to take place in May 2020, but actually was delayed to um, COVID-19. So what could have happened with this psychiatric assessment was it could have been an additional way for Dutro to request another conditional release from prison. So if the psychiatrist assessed him and gave the assessment that he was no longer a threat to public society or that he was like rehabilitated anything like that he could again apply for a conditional release but like I said it was delayed to the COVID-19 or due to the COVID-19 pandemic from what I could find in all of my sources the pre-parole psychiatric assessment it has not been rescheduled it has not been done um so as of today dutro is still in prison where hopefully he will stay until he's fucking dead and with that that is the end of this case that is the end of part two of the dutro affair um this case was absolutely insane i really wish there was more information that i could find about the supposed like sex trafficking ring and the people involved with that because honestly in my opinion well mark dutrell was an absolute like fucking piece of trash gross disgusting nasty sex offender kidnapper pedophile and he absolutely did everything to those girls he tortured them he raped them he murdered them he absolutely tried to cover it up by murdering his accomplices like he is a terrible fucking person and he he deserves to be rotting in prison and his accomplices deserve to be rotting in prison with him um but i really think that he was a part of something bigger like not to be a, a tin hatter or like a conspiracy theorist here but there was just so many weird things about this case that lined up too well to not mean something like there were videotapes of people on tape, like powerful people in Belgian society raping underage girls that they found in, in Dutro's possession in his homes. And, and like nothing was done with that. There were 25 different DNA profiles found from the hairs they pulled from the, from the house in the, in the dungeon in Mark Sinel. And like, the prosecution really tried to say that there was nothing bigger going on here beyond Mark Dutro just being a fucking pervert and a pedophile and a murderer. Like, yeah, no, I find that hard to believe. Like, absolutely, Mark Dutro was a flaming piece of human trash. But do I think he was acting completely alone? I don't know. I really think that there's a good possibility that what he was saying about this sex trafficking ring was true. And it just blows my mind that there were so many opportunities for police and for the prosecution to go further into this. And they just, you know, I mean, it, 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 I guess I can't say it surprises me. I'm frankly disappointed, but not surprised 
Because when it comes to stuff like this, if there is powerful people involved in these sorts of things, they have the police in their back pocket. They're rich, they're powerful, they can pay whatever they want to pay and basically have the police turn a blind eye to whatever they're doing. And frankly, there are police involved in this pedophile ring too. So it was never, honestly, like Dutroux could have given them everything in the world to prove the existence of this sex trafficking ring. But if you ask me, in my humble opinion, there was never going to be anything done about it. The police were never going to look into that further. They took the one person who was willing to prosecute it further, Judge Connor wrote, and they removed him from the case. Um, and they just ran with the with the people they had, with Dutroux and his accomplices, and they said, all right. We've got our people, you know, we're not going to push this any further. We're going to put him in prison where he absolutely deserves to be. And that'll be that. We're going to wash our hands of it. So there were definitely, you know, a lot of things about this case that the police just absolutely dropped the fucking ball on. Like, yes, good. They caught Mark Dutroux. They put him in prison. But, you know, where there's one Mark Dutroux, I guarantee there's dozens of others. If this sex trafficking ring really exists, as Mark Dutroux said it did. So, I mean, that was that. Um, I thank you guys so much for listening. If you are interested, please go follow me on Instagram. I post photos relating to the case. I post a little blurb about the case um, under each of the photo sets. I also provide a link to my sources there as well. Um, for this part two, I think I'm going to post some additional, you know, just case-related pictures. I was able to find a few pictures of um, Mark Dutro's houses, which I <laughs> should have clarified, I guess, is at the beginning. Like, Mark Dutro, he did have seven houses, but they were, like, shitty little houses. You know, they were the kind of homes that you, like, would walk into and you just feel dirty, like, standing there. You don't have to touch anything, but, like, you just feel grimy being in the presence of the house. Like, I'll post some of the pictures on Instagram. Like, these were not nice places. He was not, you know, big balling in seven mansions out in Wisconsin, like, T-Pain. Um, they were seven houses, but they are really shitty fucking houses. Like, the one that he had in Marcinelle was absolutely disgusting on the inside so he had seven houses but you know i'm sure what he had or what he paid for them or what he was paying with them was probably the same as it would be if he just had like one nice house so you know he wasn't rich by any means he he made his living through robbery and theft and drug running and crime and petty offenses so yeah, seven houses, but seven shitty, gross little houses. <laughs> um, like I said, I'll post some pictures of those houses on Instagram. It is um, at TSRH Podcast on Instagram. If like you would, wow, words. If you would like to follow me on there, please do. Um, if you have any suggestions for cases that you would like me to cover or to research and possibly add them to my list, um, you can email me at tsrhpodcast at gmail.com. You can also shoot me a DM on Instagram if you would like to. Um, but again, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it so much. I'm glad you've stuck with it through part one and part two. I am hoping to get another episode out sometime soon. Next episode, I'm going to be covering the case of... Uh, What's it going to be? It's going to be Satomu Miyazaki. That is a Japanese case. That one is gnarly. Um, if you like the case I covered about Armin Meves, the Grotenberg cannibal, I will think you will like 
to listen to the episode for next episode of Satoma Miyazaki because they are both up the vein, I believe, creepy cannibal cases. So stay tuned for that. I'm not going to give a timeline on that because knowing myself, I will not stick to it. So that episode, it'll be posted when it's posted. I'll do my typical on coming soon post when that is going to be up and try to get it up within the next few days after I post that. But anyways, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it so, so much. And I hope to catch you in the next one. Bye.